Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. A lot of horror stories start like this. A family moves into a suspiciously cheap dream house. Over the course of the story, the house reveals its sinister nature. Voices whisper unsettling things. Mirrors reflect people who aren't supposed to be there. The walls bleed. There's an inexplicable meowing sound. And at last, the occupants discover its terrible secret. You can't gentrify a haunted house. You either have to accept it as it is, burn it to the ground, or run away. But that doesn't stop people from trying. And right now, there's a cheery little squeeful family trying to move into a creepy old house called Horror Fiction. Here to talk about it is Andrew F. Sullivan, Canadian, horror author, and bread-shaped dog owner, not to be confused with the other inferior Andrew Sullivan. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Raquel. It's really exciting to be on Right Good. I've been listening for a while and excited to talk about horror today. Yeah, you and your bread-shaped dog are very important members of our Discord community. Yeah, my dog is a very silly creature. He's about 40 pounds of pug, bulldog, corgi, and apparently cocker spaniel because he can swim. Uh, wow. It's a secret bread fact. He enjoys the ocean and chases ducks, so he's full of surprises. Yeah. Oh, so let's start off by talking about the current state of horror publishing. I understand there was sort of a crash in, in the 80s. Horror fiction was huge. It was wildly popular. There was tons and tons of it. It was really, really profitable. I remember perusing used bookstores as a kid, seeing 10, 15-year-old paperbacks from the 80s with their sort of cool embossed covers and, and really schlocky cover art. But then something happened. In the 90s, there was a massive, massive crash, right? Oh, yeah. I think like I think you can almost see that yeah if you go into especially like older used bookstores that sort of wave that just crashes onto the shore and then disappears that sort of mid 90s surge was the last gasp of that big wave of horror a lot of great stuff being done but also just a lot of people cashing in and I yeah. mean horror has come and gone in waves before too but that 90s crash was pretty devastating for a lot of writers yeah yeah it was huge i mean it's hard to understand just how big horror was and then how quickly it just disappeared i mean it didn't totally disappear but it stopped being quite as huge why did that happen why was there such a big crash do you think i mean i'm not quite old enough to fully be <laughs> boots on the ground there but i do think it is cyclical i do think it ends up with audiences even rising and falling with popularity i don't necessarily i think once so much so many people jump on a bandwagon so many products get put out there and it becomes a product right rather than art when you're putting out three titles from every author every year quality starts to slip yeah no kidding people start to notice and i mean it can sort of become a fad in a way I don't think horror itself is faddish, and I think it actually, why it survives and why it continues to flourish in its own way is that there are people who really love it. There are people who really speaks to and it endures. But I think, yeah, that coming from publishers, coming from writers, people looking to cash in, uh, there is definitely, we've seen that with other 
fads that come and go, whether it's certain breeds of YA or dystopian fiction. I think trends are part of the scene. And that sort of mid 90s crash of horror was one of those incidents. Yeah. Now, since then, horror has chugged along kind of quietly, or, or at least not as big as it was, largely by indie horror publishers. These are people who don't expect to make big 1980s Stephen King dollars, but they're in it for love of the game. They're creepy weirdos who love sharing work with other creepy weirdos and publishing other creepy weirdos. It's a beautiful underground sicko-to-sicko -sicko economy uh, compared to sci-fi fantasy publishing, which has... I know it is niche, but it still has sort of a corporate publisher in Tor. It's weird. People talk about Tor like it's a scrappy little indie press, but it's really not. It is a corporate publisher, and it's sort of the biggest voice around. And there's not that much of an indie scene. There's not a ton of competition. Yeah, I think especially when you're talking about on that sort of novel, novella, collection level especially. I think, you know, SFF does have a lot of short fiction indie Kickstarter-based sort of supportive communities, but that's not the same as presses really putting out books, putting out writers kind of competing on the same level. And I think that's one of my favorite things about the horror world is it does bring me a lot of joy to see how many people are hustling to get their work out there, the power of a lot of these small presses to give writers a voice or get their work out there. Though that indie scene can also have its own downfalls too. Oh, yeah. Micropresses run by like a single person can flame out and sort of lose a ton of books in the process um oh yeah so, yeah indie yeah, publishing like, can be a mess yeah 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 because sometimes you get this framework of like oh it's indie and it's going to be good well no especially no. for the writer indie often means you know you have to work five times as hard you got you have to be aware of everyone you're working with but that energy and enthusiasm that's there is very exciting and it's definitely what's i think kept horror alive and moving and reinventing and that's really exciting to see and i think something that does happen with a vibrant indie scene yeah that is pretty neat i think a lot of mainstream publishers have avoided publishing a lot of horror sff publishers tend to avoid most horror as well uh toward which is a subsidiary of mcmillan publishing by the way did recently open its horror imprint what is it nightfire God, Nightfire, yeah. They've yeah, got Nightfire. Some books. Yeah, like and they have some pretty good stuff coming out. Yeah. Uh, but, but mainly it's just been a lot of indie presses. So that does mean it's, it's a mess and it means you're not going to make a ton of money, but it also means there's a lot of competition. There's chances to get real fucking weird with it and write cool, weird shit. And there's that means there's a chance for a lot of different voices who have a lot, very different approach to horror. There's not one sort of house style. Totally, yeah. And I think that's also where a lot of more marginalized voices and I think also stranger kinds of stories yeah. can kind of find their legs. And that's something that the bigger publishers just aren't willing to take a risk on until it's proven itself. Often these some of these writers are putting out self-publishing their own stuff because there's no other venue. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, when they're popular enough, the publisher comes along and yeah. kind of picks them up. Yeah. Yeah. Like right now, there's been a growing boom in trans body horror, which is great. And I have oh, trouble yeah, imagining that yeah. I have trouble imagining that any scene but horror with its indie publishing ethos would put that out there. 
because it yeah. is a little risky and it is a little niche. There's not a, a huge number of people who really want to want to read that just because there's not a lot of trans people. So um, yeah, I, I could see a lot of bigger publishers either wanting to go for kind of blander, safer representation and not something that's alienating or might make you uncomfortable or at the very least has kind of a small number of people who would absolutely love it but aren't really going to guarantee you a big blockbusting hit totally yeah i think if anything the success we're seeing is because a lot of those writers took a chance on themselves yeah and wrote the books they wanted to write and if a publisher came along and found them interesting great but they're writing this stuff anyway, yeah. whether that publishes there or not. And that's kind of what gives it so much power, I think. It's written on their terms. And they continue to see that with a lot of queer horror is just how resistant it is to the limitations of the bigger publishers. Yeah. So right now, horror publishing looks like it's heading into another boom, maybe on the heels of horror cinema. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. I think I, I mean, I'm excited about it, but I, you know, I'm biased. Obviously, I'm writing horror novels. Yeah. I'm reading a lot of horror Same. novels. I'm <laughs> I'm, oh, yeah, it's amazing. It's so cool. I, and I had no idea. But no, I think you do see it out there. I, I feel like there is that energy. I think you spoke to it well with how it's been in film. It has, we have so many different varieties coming out. And I think that's what's exciting. People can get upset about the tags like elevated horror, which is silly. But yeah. The fact that there's so much different horror coming out and it's getting a reception, it's getting an audience, that's exciting. And I can see, yeah, it seems like fiction is kind of following that route, is sort of going to ride that wave, which is exciting for a lot of writers. But yeah, it does kind yeah. of give you, right, like a little bit of a when and who is going to cash in on that new wave that's maybe just on the horizon. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, that is great, at least financially for horror writers like, oh, cool, you might be able to make more than $20 in royalties for your next book. That's cool. Hooray! Yeah, $20. That's it. Woo! Yeah, maybe double that. Yeah. And that's yeah. cool. And And it's cool to see something that I love doing really well. However, whenever there's a boom, you get people rushing toward it who are just in it for the money. And right now, I do think we're seeing a number of careerists from sci-fi, from fantasy, from other genres, just sort of chasing the money, trying to break into horror, jumping from one trend to the next. Well, YA, the YA boom is definitely on its way down because of just massive oversaturation. So, uh, okay, horror, yeah, I'll make some money here. I think there's definitely that fear is there. And I think, yeah, we, we've seen it before, like you said, with YA that's kind of burnt out and people are looking for new places to go. And yeah, you can kind of start to wonder where's this coming from and where's it going and what kind of stories are we going to be telling? Yeah. And I want to say, I, this isn't to say that everybody going from sci-fi fantasy to horror is a bad drifter person. I mean, I'm fucking doing the same thing. And a lot of people are going that way because of, well, various reasons I found the horror community overall to just be a lot less toxic than sci-fi fantasy and a lot more open to different kinds of expression than sci-fi fantasy and just they're, they're the right kinds of weirdos whenever i would go to speculative fiction conventions i always found that i just clicked with horror people better just because somehow they were more normal which doesn't make much sense i don't know why i remember at ReaderCon using the gym 
one day and looking around and the only writers that I recognized who were also using the hotel gym were other horror people. And I'm like, yeah, horror stay winning. They got Yeah, you got to get swole, right? Yes, fucking swole. Fight the monsters. You got to fight the beasties in the night. Yeah. So be ready. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Get your hour in. Yeah. Before it comes. I can't remember who said it, but it was this horror writer who said, all the people who come over from sci-fi fantasy, they look like they're traumatized from it. What the fuck is going on over there? Yeah, I think I saw that tweet. Yeah, no, I do think there's, I think that's true. And I think that's why it is a valid, I think there are people are excited to tell more complex, maybe loaded stories that, you know, certain venues maybe don't want to publish or don't have the bandwidth to handle. Like, I think yeah, horror is, it is transgressive. It is upsetting. It is supposed to challenge the reader, put them in a place maybe where they don't want to be or to ask them to, you know, take a step into the dark. And sometimes ambiguity, multiplicity, multiple meanings. I do find sometimes SFF really wants to provide a taxonomy of narrative Mm. and say, this is this kind of story. This is a good story. Don't worry. When you read this story, you'll be a good person. Horror maybe doesn't promise that. There's no promise that you'll emerge a better person. You might emerge a changed person, but better is relative. And I think that's exciting for a lot of writers who, you know, maybe are at a stage in their career where they want to tell complex, upsetting stories that they have an urge to release into the world. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what we mean by gentrification. So what is gentrification? Gentrification in sociology is when wealthy people move into a poor urban area and they build more expensive housing, and they bring in newer and more upscale businesses, but in the process, they displace the previous inhabitants of this neighborhood. It happens a lot with cool, artsy neighborhoods, queer neighborhoods, and vibrant ethnic neighborhoods. New York City, especially, has been just killed with gentrification. Greenwich Village used to be a cool place for artists. Now it's just way too fucking expensive for you to live there. Park Slope is now for sort of wealthy upscale families. It used to be a, a gayberhood. Its old nickname was Dyke Slope. Woodstock, New York, it was started as an artist's colony for sort of broke artists to live in, in the woods. And now it is the most rich person fucking insufferable hell town in the world. It's fucking horrible. I, I hate Woodstock. and I well, Tell, it's, tell it's, us how you really feel. Ricardo. It is a terrible place. I, I worked in a restaurant in Woodstock, New York, and I still get angry when I think about it. Oh, yeah. The service industry will quickly, <laughs> yeah. quickly reveal just fucking true nature. So. <laughs> it's currently happening to New Orleans. New Orleans is this cool, cool city with a vibrant culture and really interesting cultural influences and wealthy people, they're attracted to that because the city's so fucking cool. So, oh, let me move to New Orleans. It's a cool city. But in the process right now, what they're doing is they're buying up a lot of real estate and now it's hard to afford for the cool kind of Cajun artsy people who made the city what it is. And even more so, these wealthy new inhabitants are trying to pass noise ordinances banning the playing of jazz music at night. And jazz is its part of the soul of New Orleans. It's such a big part of the culture. So these people move in because they think they love the culture. And then they do something like that, which is part of killing or silencing the culture. I mean, 
New Orleans without jazz at night? That's that's not New Orleans anymore. That's just fucking bullshit. Totally. So what's so what's wrong with gentrification? We're not anti-gentrification because we don't want people to move to places that sound cool. We're not inherently against a city neighborhood changing. When a neighborhood gets gentrified and yoga studios start popping up, it's not a problem because of yoga. Like I, I do yoga. I like yoga. It's more a problem because it pushes out the other stuff. It pushes out the other things that made it cool. And there's something incredibly cruel about how a lot of the time these are neighborhoods that people move to because they're poor. People moved to Park Slope because it was cheap and because queer people did not have much money. People move to these places because they're broke and they can get it cheap and they put everything they can into making them beautiful, vibrant, wonderful neighborhoods and they build it up. And as a result of all this hard work that they do to make a great community, they get pushed out by some rich dipshits. And that fucking sucks. So right now... I feel like we're seeing the beginnings of a sort of attempt to gentrify horror publishing. Sci-fi and fantasy mags and publishers are trying to push their own horror, and it's often a kind of softer, watered-down version of horror stories. There's a lot of fondness for a spooky or even worse, a spoopy aesthetic, but without the difficult emotional resonance of really, really good horror. So there might be ghosts or goblins or vampires, but it doesn't take you to these emotionally daring places. And that's kind of what's important for horror. There's been a call for quote unquote cozy horror. There's been a demand for likable characters, unambiguous morals and unambiguous endings. I've seen a lot of sort of therapy stories where obviously horror often is a metaphor for trauma or mental illness, but it's sort of a place where you can let it all hang out and be gross. But I, I'm seeing a lot of sort of therapy stories where instead of confronting this this dark side of yourself in a way that's like messy and uninhibited, it's facing it in a safe way like you would at a therapist's office. And I'm sorry, but that shit's fucking boring. That's boring as fuck. I don't want that. I think it's also this idea, too, that you can, that, you know, these problems are solvable with just enough effort or enough therapy or the right spell or the right confrontation will diminish them. Yeah. And I mean, a solved story to me is not really a horror story. That ambiguity, that multiplicity, the fact that you yourself may be the issue, that you have the capacity to cause harm. All those things are really powerful to me and really part of how to tell a horror story. And so, yeah, I think my idea of like a great cozy horror story would be something that leaves those things still festering. And I think, yeah, when, when you have narrative closure in a way where everyone's walking away, like you said, sort of a therapy session, it might be a different kind of story that's not really fully engaging with the possibilities that the grimy kind of grotesqueness of someone, you know, like Clive Barker might bring to the genre who's been doing that for decades. And that's kind of what's made a lot of horror thrive. So, yeah, I think the issues you're identifying are definitely real. They're out there very much that sort of I think something that we've seen with SFF and other genre groups is definitely that sort of hashtag M writing grind set vibe that you just got to crush it every day. 
Yeah, can you um, talk about that a little bit more? Because you've spoken about this on the Discord a lot. Yeah, saying, oh, yeah, no, no, just, no, it's coming into horror, no. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I think it's just like the, a fascination with stats, with hit rates, with getting stories into venues, even the idea of having publications. The numbers are against you these days, the number of submissions to any magazine. I think writers trying to gamify the process gamify submission is kind of getting away from what makes writing exciting and what makes writing personally fulfilling for me and just seeing it sort of become this endless pursuit of anthologies table of contents whatever else that's not really what it's about and you can see a bit of that in sff and then seeing it kind of trickle over there's a lot of it in sff yeah 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 and i think (laughs) it's just At the same time, no one is making a ton of money off this. So it does seem that sort of grind set vibe or that that idea that if you just keep working harder on how you submit rather than what you're writing, I don't love it. I think it's definitely something that's grinds away at me a little bit, just seeing how relentless it is, how it can make writers who are really good uh, start to doubt themselves and to doubt their abilities just because they're not keeping up with the rat race. And again, yeah, like you said, it's not like people are taking home thousands of dollars here. This is often small potato stuff with limited prestige, but it's turning it into yeah, a gamified system. Um, yeah. It's scary. More grind me, set I... shit. Almost yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost yeah, like maybe... Huns doing shit for an MLM. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's definitely, you start, I mean, that's writing across the board too, like oh, from yeah. Litfic to Romance, you kind of get that, yeah, that MLM vibe that like Actually, you're just not working hard enough. Yeah. If you were, if you were. Just achieve your dreams. The only thing standing in your way is you and your bad mindset. And then you look at the publication rate for a magazine and it's like under 1%. There's a lot of people writing and that's great. Writing has a low barrier to entry. Ideally, we'd be getting a lot of diverse voices and a lot of different people out there. And we are in the indie scene. But when it starts to be gamified, when it starts to take on that sort of technocratic approach to a meritocracy i don't necessarily think that's healthy there's also the issue too people are hoping to make money but if there are more writers than there are readers you're kind of fucked oh yes and you get you get this thing in a lot of speculative fiction where there are people who are always trying to sell a story or sell a book but they're not really reading much i don't know who you expect to read your work if you're not reading anybody else's Uh, we have a lot of writers who only cite movies when it comes to talking about storytelling and talking about their influences. And you can see it in their prose that they learned from movies and not really from reading. And, oh, that's not good. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and I've seen, yeah, I've seen, yeah. Lincoln Michaels talked a lot about that in his Substack. I think he's really good at identifying that. You get those reaction shot fiction where we have you get sort of this blocking fiction where it was like this person was in the room then they went here then they went there um yeah we did a whole episode on it back in the day yeah with carlo that's true wise wise carlo Yeah. yeah i think that's part of it as well right you start to see these things bleed in and so i think that's also part of the overall atmosphere of online writing right and it's sort of trickling yeah horror because there's now there's money to be made, or at least people think there's money to be made. There probably it, yes. isn't for the vast majority of people. By money to be made, I mean fifty dollars 
yeah. in exchange for a short story that took you several months to write. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. And All I mean, right. And it's, it's coming to a genre that does thrive more in ambiguity, in unease, in dread, in stuff that's difficult to assimilate, difficult to swallow. Yeah. Um, and so there's sometimes I find with some short fiction out there, there's a desperation for kind of clarity clarity of purpose. Yep. And horror fiction is often going to deny you that. It's going to leave you wondering. Yeah. And it will have what works for one editor won't for another. It's about the readers finding what they love. Yeah. Yeah. And and just as we talked about how gentrification pushes out the original inhabitants, what I'm worried about is if that kind of approach that's normal in SFF comes to horror Will that affect the approach to fiction? We've seen in some really grim ways the way sci-fi and fantasy polices the boundaries of acceptable expression. I know I return to this over and over again, but the fucking helicopter story. This was a sci-fi story in a major sci-fi publication that got a positive response initially, but it made enough people uncomfortable that they ruined the author's life the way they attacked her because this story made them feel uncomfortable and weird and didn't give them a clear ending and didn't give them this unambiguous emotion at the end of it and they just ruined this writer's life over it and if that mentality is coming to a genre that thrives on discomfort and ambiguity how's that gonna mix yeah and i think that's probably where we will see some clashes and we'll see some sort of waves. And I I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because I do think like the very nature of horror is going to um, alter that, you know, the encounter will, I don't think it'll be a strict takeover. I think it will kind of alter maybe this kind of stories being told, Um, but there will be, I think it's not so much a sea change as like a, back and forth uh, yeah. between both sides there. And I think, if anything, that people do want to tell these stories. And I think yeah. there's a lot of writers who are looking to escape. Like you said, they're trying to find a way to speak to something they felt they couldn't before. We do see examples of that gentrified horror. I think, again, when we're talking about sort of forerunners, we were seeing it a lot in film and TV first. Yeah. Um, we're seeing it with like a lot of Netflix horror. We're seeing it, oh, you know. Oh, God. Fucking Bly Manor. Right? Yeah. Like, fucking like, Bly hey, Manor. Let's take an incredible novel. Let's <sighs> strip it of all of its purpose and horror and unease and just make it into a, a story about family. Gosh. Yeah. Like, I, I, that's where I think. What they did to Shirley Jackson, too, with, with the first season. What is it? Haunting of Hill House. Unforgivable. That they changed the line from whatever walked there walks alone to whatever walked there walked together. Yes. Like that is like that bit in in The Simpsons where the guy makes the Red Hot Chili Peppers change their lyric to what I'd like is that I'd like to hug and kiss you. Oh, exactly. I think it's the level we're at. I'm so angry. Yeah. And one thing I'm also super worried about is pushing out the grimy, grotesque, horny queerness that's been able to thrive in horror. We love you, Clive Barker. Thank you. Yeah. In exchange for the very sanitized, very sexless version of queerness that's embraced in mainstream sci-fi fantasy. 
Yeah, I think that I think that's where we're going to see a very big difference is that horror fucks. It just does. And, and I horror think a lot fucks of the, in fucking weird ways. And it, too. Yes, in weird ways with weird organs and strange methods. And if anything, yeah, it embraces all forms of bodily connection. That's definitely something that you do miss in a lot of SFF. You're not getting yeah. that sort of really tactile, lived-in feeling that I think some of the best current horror is kind of achieving. Yeah. And yeah, the the old gods like Clive were all about. And so yeah, seeing that in film and TV has definitely been not great to... It is that first wave of gentrification. And I think that's the clearest example. Those series entirely stripping away everything that made something like the haunting of hill house so iconic and the new candy man where he turns him into a superhero at the end yeah i mean i and and new candy man had some ideas in it and then just was like it's beautifully ah, shot nah, we're gonna yeah like yeah but then it just fell apart in the end and i'm watching yeah, it going, no concepts and then was like oh actually we don't want to go there i think that at the same time, you get the pushback, though, too. Like, Shudder just keeps pumping stuff out. Yes. There's a, there's a great strangeness out there. What's great about horror is how much of it can be done on the cheap, mm-hmm. which means also there's going to be a lot of trash, too, and you have to sort through it, and that's part of the fun of it. But, yeah, we like I said, you kind of have these waves back and forth. We do get these series from Netflix, and then we get something out of nowhere like Skidamarink, which is like, I'm here to upset you. I'm here to we're here for a bad time. We're here for a bad time and maybe a long time. We're not telling you when you get to go home. Good luck. And that's really exciting. And that's hilarious to me is just the varied reactions you're getting. And I mean, I want to see that with horror fiction as well. And I think you do get that with horror fiction from the indie stuff like Eric LaRocca, Gretchen Felger Martin, like you're really going to see it. Joe Koch. Paul D. Ash putting out stuff that is here to upset you. And that's exciting. But that gentrification is still there on the boundary, right? Like you said, it's. Yeah. You can see it it kind of. You can see it. You can see it. You can really, really see Worldcon hosting a bunch of horror related panels, but all staffed by people who don't really know much about horror. They love talking about Final Girls, forgetting that Final Girls as, as a topic is like. 15 years old now and everything that's been possibly said about it has already been said. And I think Torblog ran this really awful piece talking about how sexist and problematic the, the final girl trope is. It was written by, first of all, a Christian pastor, which is weird, who accused Slumber Party Massacre of misogyny, forgetting that Slumber Party Massacre was written by a pair of feminists. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember that. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, no, there's this there's this amazing thing where people outside the genre assume. Yeah, he was a pastor. Oh, man. Written Uh, by Rita Mae Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slumber Party Massacre. A woman who wrote a very famous lesbian coming of age novel called Ruby Fruit Jungle. Well, and there's also just the fact that horror is aware of its tropes. Yes. It's aware of itself. It talks to itself. The community is aware of these things. Scream was over 20 years ago, guys. Exactly. Exactly. It is a self-aware genre that is excited to play with these things and talk about these things. And just seeing people come in and be like, ah, here's my thesis. Don't know if you guys ever considered the final girl. 
a little bit problematic. It, it flummoxes me seeing these kind of articles. The idea that horror isn't aware of its own tropes, that it isn't aware of its past is something that a pastor would say. Yeah, yeah. So do we want to name names? Do we want to talk about the the gentrified horror fiction? Because I I, I figure I might as well. I'm not afraid. Who, oh, am I going yeah, sure can- to be canceled again? Or at least list some examples. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. always run we always run into this thing where if I name names, then I get accused of bullying. But if I don't, it's, you're not providing any evidence and you're just generalizing. Like, okay, well, fine. Okay. So here's a name. The Book of Accidents, Chuck Wendig. <laughs> the hero is a goody two-shoes boy with zero emotional ambiguity. It's boring. It pulls punches. It backs down from anything too uncomfortable. Here's an example. So the hero is this boy who has psychic powers that can affect people's emotions. And there's a bit where he uses his psychic powers to heal like a bully's pain to try and make him better. And then the bully commits suicide. And at first it looks like, okay, this could be interesting. It could be you're you're wrestling with the ability of good intentions going wrong or you're realizing, okay, the thing I was doing, even though I was well-intentioned, it was inherently manipulative. You're affecting somebody's emotions without their consent, and that's kind of fucked up. So it seems like it's going to be kind of interesting and introspective, but then what happens is it turns out that the bad guy killed the bully and staged it as a suicide. You were going into an area that was uncomfortable. You were going into something that was difficult and morally ambiguous, but then you back down. Because like, oh no, our hero has to be a good guy unambiguously. We'll we'll make the bad guy do it. Okay. But that's weak. That's weak as fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no. And I think it, it's reducing, again, that, so as you mentioned, that emotional ambiguity. It's not allowing the reader to kind of sit with, who have I been cheering for this whole time? Who have I been throwing in with? Yeah. Um, the complexity kind of gets drained out. And I think, It is also, it's sometimes a bit of a throwback to be like, oh, well, you know, we can't, he is a kid, as if childhood hasn't been a sign of horror forever. As if horrifying things never happen to children. I think that's true. And I think there's definitely elements in some modern horror novels where it's going to be like, okay, we've taken you up to the gate, but we're not actually going to open it. We're going to look through the bars at the scary thing. Yeah. you won't actually have to touch it. You're okay. You're safe out here. Pulling punches, backing down. I think that's what you're describing. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's something that's going to continue, obviously. I don't know if there's a... Yeah. I don't know if we have a, an anti-gentrification squad out there on the streets. But I think, yeah, if there's a readership looking for that, I'm not sure what they're going to find in horror. Yeah. I'd like to list another example. I feel it's fair to say that this is punching up because this is a story that won, I believe, a Hugo and a Nebula. The inexplicable to me popularity of the award-winning Open House on Haunted Hill. So it's a short story. It's widely hyped up by the SFF crowd. And it's about a guy buying a haunted house that wants to be his friend. First of all, there's no engagement with Shirley Jackson's novel that the title's riffing on. And for me, I feel like this story embodies most of my problems with gentrified horror because it literally is a gentrification story. It's about a guy buying a suspiciously cheap house, but it's okay. Now, here's what bugs me about this story. Haunted houses aren't really about the ghosts. It's usually about 
the sins of the past. In European literature, haunted house stories are often about social class and aristocracy. If you are from an old money family, chances are your ancestors built up that old money by doing some really fucking evil shit, by like working for Nazis or taking part in the slave trade or doing imperialism or something. In North America, haunted houses are very, very often about colonialism and the fact that we're living on stolen land. Amityville Horror, that whole story went for the old, obviously very problematic, this was built on an Indian burial ground thing. Poltergeist had the you-didn't-move-the-body scene where this homeowner realizes that his dream house is built on a former cemetery. And the developer said, it's okay, we moved the graves. But they found he finds out they didn't move the bodies, just the headstones. So in a way, it's kind of having people forced to engage with the fact that this place they moved into is not a blank slate. There's a history to it, and it's an ugly history. And at some point, you're going to be confronted with it. You can't just decide that this is okay. You've got to face this. But an open house in Haunted Hill, there's no acknowledgement of the history. There's no reckoning with history. The house is there for you. It wants to be your friend because you deserve it, you special Caucasian man. Don't think about it real hard. It's a gentrifier fairy tale to me. And the fact that this story gets so much adoration, mainly to me it's inexplicable because it's really not a particularly good story stylistically, but something about it, I, I doubt this is intentional, but this emptiness to it, this failure to engage with history really leaves a fucking bad taste in my mouth because haunted house stories as problematic as they can be also have this subversiveness to it and here it's just gone yeah i think in the way of the gentrified haunted house i can see where people draw some comfort from it as if this monster was actually your friend the whole time but that to me is a it's it's a concept it's like no it's okay americans puerto ricans want you to move to puerto rico and buy all the land it's yeah. cool it's great it's open also, a bitcoin mining farm here fucking yeah. do it you belong here kill all the cokies because they're noisy i think what you're describing too to me also sounds like maybe act one of a great story where then the house starts trying to implicate you in what it is but we don't get there do we no like, no it's just it's your friends accepting the house on its terms means accepting all the other things that maybe it represents and that is an interesting story in there. There is something about siding with the house or getting the house to side with you, but that's not there. Uh, yeah. And I think you're reckoning with history. Like, I think that's what's exciting to me about haunted house stories is that sort of you can't outrun the past. Yeah. That the past is alive, is present, is part of your everyday and your 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 idea that you can put it into chronological order and set things right is sort of yeah a very like human arrogance and i think very like so. that arrogance is often what gets upended in great horror is that arrogance gets shown for what it is which is often a deep insecurity or a deep fear that you will be found out and so i think yeah the issues you're raising here there's always the possibility i think for a cozy horror story to work but i'm waiting for that trap door 
to kick out in the middle of the living room and plunge us into something a little bit darker, a little bit more substantial, and a little bit more willing to confront maybe what that house represents. Yeah. And yeah. I and I think that's what's exciting about it is the free reign you have to go where to take things further. And yeah. horror's saying, okay, that's great. Push it. Yeah. Open the door and uh, do something worse. We're already seeing horror venues that are asking for limitations on the kinds of stories and what topics they can discuss. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're definitely seeing that. In some cases, it totally makes sense. I mean, way back in the day, I used to be a slush reader for Lit Mag in Canada, and we get insane, horrifying power fantasies, rape fantasies, the terrible stuff that you just delete after the first page. But I've been seeing calls where it is sort of like, oh, you know, nothing with too much violence. And it, it does cause a lot of writers to hesitate. Like, okay, what are these boundaries? What do these boundaries mean? This is different from content warnings or putting out work and acknowledging, yes, there's child death in here. There's whatever else in here. Yeah. Um, but the fact that you're seeing submission guidelines that are like, oh, no weapons. Well, what? What do you want from me? No children in peril. I think that to me is a bigger sign of the gentrification to come is watching the sort of the creep of what is allowed showing yeah. up in guidelines. I think editors do need to make intelligent choices and do need to really think hard about what they're putting out there and what is the writer trying to achieve with this? And is this just, do they just want to make the reader disgusted or exert some control over the reader? But when it's in the guidelines, writers are wondering, what is gore? My character loses a hand. Is that gore? There's a car accident. How, how descriptive do I get? Where does that line come up? Mm. And you can feel kind of that chill on some authors. Often authors from, you know, communities that feel that chill in other places and are using that fiction to kind of express themselves. So that's been, if anything, that's been the big sign of sort of that gentrification you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, a member of our Discord said she was super pissed off because she saw a call for submissions to, I think it was a women's horror anthology. And one of the guidelines was no sexual violence. And she said... Okay, this is the thing that women are most afraid of. Right. If you're a like, woman, this is a, a thing that affects your life a hell of a whole lot. So to say you can't write about it at all in horror is ridiculous. Someone maybe had a good intention somewhere, and it's totally right. out of whack with what's going to be submitted. And it's just, I know the comment you're talking about too, and I think it's very much being unwilling to trust the writers that are going to send yeah. you stuff and trust that they they know these experiences and obviously you're going to get a lot of shit but you're also going to get some some fucking great stuff too yeah yeah, yeah. you will get shit but you're going to get shit no matter what and the people are going to send you real shit they don't even read the guidelines they're sending you whatever they want they don't give a shit you know it's automated for them they're just pumping crap out there so yeah you, you are going to have some writers who hesitate and maybe who don't send and i think Again, with those guidelines, it's really, yeah, that it's that chilling effect that says, maybe I can't tell this story. Maybe this isn't a safe place for me to submit this story. And you end up with sort of a horror that's not willing to confront what is actually so terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about 
the paranoid horror community. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I was thinking more just like, I do feel like horror does have sometimes an aggressive immune system that can lash out. I do think sometimes horror can, oh, you're trying to write horror. You don't even know, man. You yeah. don't even like it can kind of have that vibe of you name your three favorite Joy Division songs. And I think we, we see that again when people freak out about elevator horror like five six years after it was a term that was out there it's over and over it's the same discourse and it, i do get it it's a fear of a world that doesn't accept horror i think that's something it has in common with sff that kind of paranoia that there's outsiders who made fun of us or made fun of our work or i took a workshop one time and someone was mean to me and it really upset me and I think that's real. Your traumas are real and your experiences are real. But I mean, horror has its own power. It's it's like this fear of a broader audience. I think Jeff Vandermeer at one point when he was talking about this kind of tendency in SFF is like the language of defeat. Like, oh, they, they don't understand us. They're secretly all writing novels about professors fucking their students. And <laughs> like, no, some of the best lit fic stuff is playing with genre like Carmen Maria Machado's writing horror. Yeah. Come on. She's writing horror. She's writing amazing horror. She's writing memoir. She's playing with genre. She's doing amazing stuff structurally. But she went to Iowa. She did writing workshops. That doesn't mean it's not horror. I think I, when I'm talking about paranoid horror, it's just this idea of someone's trying to take our thing. And I get that. That's kind of what we're talking about here today, right? The gentrification. Yeah. But I think it's it, what we should be doing instead is kind of opening up that tent wider. And I think that's what a lot of the indie publishers are doing. But that the paranoid reaction of, oh, this person tried to write horror and they didn't do it right. Okay, well, maybe that's a new kind of horror. Maybe you don't love it, but it's growing in your garden anyway. You can't weed it out. And I think sometimes, again, when we're seeing stuff like Skin Marink recently too, like the discomfort over this doesn't have a plot. Okay. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's fine. That's allowed. You can do that. Just a wariness of the outside world and being threatened a little bit. I do kind of sometimes get that feeling. At the same time, I think once if people come with the right attitude, horror is extremely welcoming. Like you said, you're going to the workout, you're going to go work out at ReaderCon and everybody's just happy to have you there. So I think that kind of overlap between SFF and horror that's a place of sympathy, but it's also kind of a place that can put up walls where it should kind of be a bridge instead. Mm. Yeah. And I guess that kind of leads into, yeah, I guess my next kind of thing I wanted to, the, the scary part, I guess, of gentrification of horror is it, it when it starts demarcating what is safe yeah, and what is allowed. Like you said, with who's playing jazz at night, is that allowed? It links to something, say, like a larger discourse of whether sex scenes are necessary or not. The fact oh that like, anyone's talking about what's necessary in art. I know I do, I bring up the worst thing possible, right? Oh but like, oh I do think that's kind of where this kind of thing goes, right? Is it's like, oh, this, why was that in here? It was excessive. I mean, or the, the barrier gaze, the horrible, horrible, horrible misuse of the expression, bury your gaze. Yeah. Which yeah, is exactly. not, it doesn't mean, oh, a gay character died. This is a bury your gaze. What it, refers to as a tendency for poorly written stories to have a minor queer character and then kill them off for cheap drama. Oh, and yeah. that's not necessarily what happens every single time a queer character dies in a narrative. Yeah, I can't even... The idea that TV tropes is going to dictate 
the oh kind of story God. I tell. Offensive to me. Is offensive, yes. Yeah. <laughs> TV tropes as the arbiter of storytelling is a fucking travesty. That's one of the worst possible things. I mean, being aware, self-aware of your genre, being aware of the kinds of stories that are being told is totally, you know, it's something I think horror really does well. And just yeah. to see, yeah, this sort of, ah, uh, yeah, I saw your tropes. All right. It's that sort of cinema sinsification yeah. of culture. It's this idea like, oh, you made a mistake. You did a IMDb goof. I don't have any patience for it. I don't want to tell those kind of stories. It's it, it ends up kind of being a policing of what's possible. It's a taxonomy. It's like, well, if we name all the parts, they can't hurt us. They'll hurt you if they want to. There's room for all kinds of horror and there's room for all kinds of story elements. But that means keeping the indigestible stuff, keeping the stuff that's really hard to swallow by design. The stuff that is, if you're looking back in the, at some of the best 90s horror, like Poppy Zebright or Kath Koja, like The Cypher, those are grimy books. Those are books that I read them once. Maybe I'll read them again, but they, they left an imprint. And those aren't books that lend themselves to easy consumption. And I think what's, what's scary about something like the guidelines for what you can submit is it sort of threatens to flatten a genre down. It's like, again, well, is this necessary to the plot? I mean, nothing's necessary in art. We're making art. I guess what horror writers need to stick to, like we're making art. Yeah. We're not an algorithm. The danger of something like gentrified horror is accepting the terms and conditions of your publisher for a little yeah. bit more money for a little bit more prestige to say, oh, I won't include this scene because it's a bit tropey or it's a bit upsetting. I've seen this with some of my own work, to be honest, where trying to offer multiplicity of interpretation becomes, oh, I, I don't know what this means. So I'm going to assume the worst possible version of it. Like, yeah. I, I think that's something to that the one-to-one -one correlations, the sort of desire for, uh, oh, this is the good guy, this is the bad guy. If anything, horror itself resists that. I think horror stories resist that. We're happy to, you know, throw canon out the window. The idea that there's going to be a logic or that you can identify who's on your team, that's, that seems super alien to me. And so when I run into reviews that are like, well, yeah, this guy was a pervert. He didn't say that was bad. So <laughs> or there's just, need for rules. They I, oh, I find yeah. that audience really, really wants rules and rules to make logical sense, which is yeah. pretty fucking weird when you're dealing with the supernatural. Oh, yeah. Like the idea that you can provide a perfect taxonomy. I think that's also part of sort of. I know you've done episodes on this before on Right Good. The idea of world building as like, oh, see, these are the rules. Now that we have them, we're safe. That's world builder brain to be like, well, why did the monster do that? Why the fuck should I tell you? Yeah. Like I it drove me crazy when I when I got all of me published to make a long story short. It is about a mermaid, but she's not a fish mermaid. She's a starfish mermaid. So if you cut one arm off. She grows a new arm and the arm grows into a new her. And people were really mad because they said the clones retain her memories and um, clones don't actually retain memories of the original. I'm like, it's a fucking mermaid. Yeah, Mermaids aren't real. I'm sorry. Is this magical fucking self-mutilating mermaid story not rational enough for you? Ex Sit oh, the yeah. fuck down, man. Also, 
since when are you an expert on starfish bodies? Maybe they do keep memories. In yeah, their... maybe they do, you don't bitch. Know, man, you don't. It's know. a metaphor, fucker. Yeah, yeah. Just I, you just need a big hammer that says it's a metaphor. Smash it around. Honestly, um, I mean, there was. I, I put it in the introduction of the story, and people still didn't understand what it was about. Yeah, no, I think that's a big. That's a big part of it, especially horror stories. I think a lot of your fiction leans this way, too. It it lends itself to ambiguity. It lends itself to multiplicity. It resists logic. It resists taxonomy. It resists borders. And I mean, that's also why some of the best current horror is queer horror, is diverse horror coming from a lot of new voices and new places, because they don't need to fit into a specific call and response of Here's the moral of my story. Here's how the moral was executed. Here's the summary of why that moral was good. Thank you for reading this essay that I sold as a story. Horror won't do that. If anything, you might end up agreeing with the wrong thing. And I mean, that's, that's the fear, right? That's you, you might consume some art that doesn't perfectly match your politics. Mm-hmm. And then you might have to reckon with what that means. And uh, a lot of people don't want to go down that road. So I think that's that's kind of why I have a lot of hope for horror to keep evolving and keep yeah. allowing new genres to bloom within it, including cozy horror. But to absolutely strangle anything that says, oh, actually, I figured it all out. And mm-hmm. uh, I know exactly what every writer's thinking at all times. And if a story doesn't tell me exactly what it's saying morally it's a bad story yeah and i think that's kind of what will keep horror thriving let's hope so i think so i mean it wants to transgress right it does whether that's good or bad people do do a bad job as well there's a lot of bad horror fiction as well it's not like it's all oh yeah there's so much bad horror there's so much bad stuff and there's so much shit yeah and you should be able to make shit writing people creating people making art that's exciting i just don't have to like it yeah. but i can be excited about people making it and i can be excited about people creating things i just don't have to say it's good yeah the fact you're making art is great what you make i don't really care and i think horror is gonna say i don't have a solution but i'm gonna make you look yeah and there's a lot of people who don't want to look So it's been an hour. We're winding down. Tell us about your book that's coming out, The Marigold. Thank you. Yeah, The Marigold is a novel about a city eating itself, kind of based around a luxury condo tower, speaking of gentrification, that is filled with a sentient mold. It's a polyphonic novel. It's got a lot of different voices, different people all trying to cope with this sort of disease spreading through the city, through the buildings. The government's in denial about it. It's sort of a near future, but it is very grounded and takes place in Toronto, which is a city I lived in for over a decade. And, you know, I can still see it from my house now. But it is it's a novel sort of about what happens when a community begins to fail, when the structures of sort of civic society start to fall apart and not in a sudden, you know, apocalyptic fireball, but in a slow grinding 
wear and tear of just the everyday. It's about how we build, like you were saying, wealth is built on bodies. Mm. Wealth is built on literal bodies of the people who came before. And um, yeah, it's an exploration of that. It's a little bit Cronenberg. Yeah, I definitely get Cronenberg vibes. Yeah, it's very Cronenberg. What's that first one he did? Shivers? Yeah, Shivers, exactly, which also takes place in a tower. Yes, Um, it does. Yeah, the Brood, Videodrome. This is very much in a Canadian tradition. It calls out to stuff like, you know, J.G. Ballard's High Rise as well. It's sort of a mistrust of our own arrogance of trying to build up into the sky. And yeah, just sort of interrogating the city itself and how what people are willing to do to survive. Yeah, it's been kind of a crazy experience to write it. I'm really excited to have it out there in the world. I think it does speak to the current moment, especially in Toronto right now, but also in a lot of other cities. I started writing it during actually years before COVID, probably 2017. And then when the pandemic started, I kind of was like, oh, I should probably stop. The whole world could change. Yeah. After three months, I was like, oh, no, civic irresponsibility government apathy people left to kind of fend for themselves yeah no no i'm gonna continue writing this book it's not a covid book but the covid thing definitely made me double down twice as hard on like okay no this was going in the right direction and treating sort of like the city as a body itself too you know so yeah it's about what happens when you try to hide the past and uh it always comes back all right so thanks for coming on and talking about horror Thanks for having me, Raquel. I always love listening to Right Good and glad we got to chat about this today. I'm looking forward to the next time we have to decide uh, which TV trope we're going to eliminate. I think uh, Barrier Gaze is probably one of them, but we might also go after stuff that's just uh, listed like father figure or mother or, (laughs) oh, you mean people? Yeah. Yeah. What's amazing is TV tropes has... Happy endings are a trope, sad endings are a trope, and ambiguous endings are a trope. That, that's the only three ways you can really end something. How are those all tropes? Yeah. Well, ah, you've it's... used the this story ends trope. Yeah, no, exactly, right? It's that, <laughs> it's that like, okay, detective, show us your evidence. They're like, well, the story had a beginning, first of all. Let me tell you that. Yeah. I think that's our next step is to slowly quietly delete every page of tv tropes yeah we had an episode about that too about the evils of tv tropes yeah anyway so that's it thank you for coming on and thank you all for listening if you like what you heard head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe until next time keep writing good this has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittystasis.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash right good. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>